Welcome to Everyday Greatness, a nice little show proudly brought to you by major sponsor ARA Group, one of Australia's greatest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness is a show hosted by a real human being, talking to some real people about real human issues that will help make you feel proud again of simply being a good solid Joe Bag of Donuts. Here's your host, Barnaby Howarth. Welcome to Everyday Greatness and thanks for listening. This is a show designed to celebrate the greatness in living an everyday life. So grab a drink, kick your feet up and settle in. Before I start today, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. I think acknowledging Indigenous Australians is more important than just reading from a generic impersonal script. So I'd like to honour the traditional owners of the land from the heart. I love being an Australian, so I'd like, to acknowledge, I'd like to acknowledge those who came before us, those we share the land with today, and those who follow us. As a white Australian, I'm flat out embarrassed at some of the things that have happened in this country in the past, so I'd like to acknowledge that I feel terrible for any pain that's been caused, but I'd also like to acknowledge how beautiful Aboriginal Australian culture, your past, your place in today's society and your future are. Thank you for sharing your country with us. Diversity and inclusion in the workplace, in the sporting arena and in general society is like making a toffee with no sugar. You could just close your eyes and throw in any odd sweetener, but it would most likely end up an epic fail and shrivel into a tiny ball of fake syrup. Or you could do your research on the less well-known sugar substitutes. Give the less obvious choice a crack, and you might find your end goal becomes a reality that would have been better had you not looked outside the box. Finding alternatives to the obvious choice can quite often lead to unexpected gems. It isn't about closing your eyes and just flat out hoping things turn out. Doing some research and trying different ways can lead you to sweeteners that sometimes end up better than the obvious old school predictable method. And you might end up with a better toffee than you would have had you gone the obvious choice. My guests today, site leader for the Australia and New Zealand Adobe Proud Employee Network at Adobe Australia, Eleanor Rugg, and Hall of Fame basketballer Steve Carfino both know that the world hasn't always been willing to give the less obvious choice a crack. But they also know that times they are a changing. So I'm going to have a crack at interviewing both of them. Not knowing whether you're going to be accepted into the room you walk into can be a daunting prospect. When Eleanor Rugg walked into the door on her first day at work at Adobe, she was nervous that she might not be accepted as a gay woman. Now Ellie is the site leader for the Australia and New Zealand Adobe Proud Employee Network for lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender colleagues to talk about life issues and business. Sport is often used as a metaphor for business practices and that's no more true than in Eleanor's situation at her local AFL club the Pennant Hills Demons. 
The Demons started off as a ragtag bunch of misfits. They played in Sydney's second division and they recruited players by having clubmen stand on a main road and wave in, lot, wave in cars with Victorian licence plates. They are now a professional, successful first division clubs with 11 teams, including five women's teams, of which Eleanor is the captain of Premier Division. The Pennant Hills Demons mirror business diversity and inclusion by making sure that everybody feels accepted in the room they walk into. It's my pleasure to say that Eleanor Rugg joins me on Everyday Greatness. Eleanor, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Not a problem. How nervous were you when you first walked in the door for your first day of work, not knowing if you'd be welcomed as a gay woman? Pretty nervous. I think I'd previously only really worked in hospitality, which, you know, has some of its own challenges and around diversity and lifestyle. And, and then walking into my first real corporate corporate role, it was, um, you know, it was an ex- exceptionally nervous part of my life. And I was I was still kind of in my early 20s and, and that part of my life I was still coming to terms with and, you know, you were still constantly having to have those conversations with people. And, um, you know, I was very thankful and grateful at the time. A, a good friend of mine worked there and I think two or three days in, I said, oh, mate, do you, do you reckon, like, do I have to keep this a secret? Will people care? And and I think she flat out laughed in my face and said, mate, no one will give any, you know, no one will care at all. And and it was really grateful to to hear that from her. And, and I think over time we've you know, where I've worked and I know a lot of other corporate businesses are putting a lot of emphasis on having diverse people in in senior roles. And, and now, you know, six years on into my corporate working life, um, you know, I do see people in very senior positions who are, you know, of the queer community and that's very encouraging. And I think it makes it a lot easier for the people coming into corporate workplaces today than it did for me six years ago. Has your sexuality ever been a barrier to things you've wanted to achieve in business? I think I don't know if it's a barrier, but I think it's also it's definitely something that I've thought about a lot. So uh, prior to joining Adobe, where I work now, I was also also offered a, a role in um, a small financial planning firm, and so that was kind of where you know my career was at a, at a crossroads. Did I go into tech or would I go into financial planning? And and I met with the the owner of this business, and, and they were saying, oh, you know, us and our wives love to go away for golfing weekends. You know, I'm sure your boyfriend would love to come and. And in those conversations, I just was like, I don't know how well they would really accept me. Like it was from a, you know, whilst they were lovely people and, you know, they didn't know this about me, so maybe I'm prejudging, but I definitely didn't feel comfortable in that moment being 25, 30 years younger than these people, kind of, you know, letting them into that part of my life. And it's probably held me back in some instances, especially when I was younger, just because you you just don't know how people are going to react and that's, you know, that's definitely a sad aspect of, of, I guess, life and there's been a lot of good growth in, in the last kind of 10 to 15 years. Um, but, yeah, I think every time someone always asks me, oh, you know, do you have a boyfriend or a husband, it's, it's still kind of, you know, my heart sort of goes and like, oh, actually, uh, you know, my girlfriend or like my not, soon-to-be wife, you just, you just don't know and that's the fear. So speaking of good changes in the last decade, tell me a little bit about Adobe Proud. How and why was it set up and how does it, who does it support and how does it support them? Yeah, definitely. So we were obviously head office out of San Jose in California 
Um, and that's a very progressive part of the world, uh, you know, in, in Silicon Valley and in, in a kind of a San Francisco area. But for a long time we've had uh, what's called employee networks. So we've got Ben, so the Black Employee Network, uh, Adobe for Women, Adobe Pride. Um, in the US they've got veterans. Obviously that's not as kind of relevant over here for us, uh, same as Ben. Um, uh, I think like Latino Network, um, We've got a diversity network as well. So these are networks that have been created uh, for people to, I guess, join and whether you're an ally or uh, you're part of that network yourself or perhaps a family member is, it's, it's just a way for us to raise awareness um, and also, you know, really just support people in the process of kind of in corporate life. It's really good to know that you've got people you know, similar to you. Uh, and so at the start of last year, just before COVID lockdown, uh, we decided to launch the Adobe Pride Network in Adobe, uh, in Sydney, so in our Sydney office, So for and that's uh, across Australia and New Zealand satellite offices. So, um, yeah, so it's just a really, it's a community, it's, it's a place that we, you know, we can run events, um, work with our peers, especially allies. So I think, you know, we've obviously... You know, the demographic here in our Sydney team is, is very small from an LGBT plus community, but it's really around educating and, and you know, helping our allies so they can also understand how they can. So it's been kicked off. We, we launched at last year's Mardi Gras in the office. Um, haven't had a whole lot of face-to-face events in the last two years uh, for obvious reasons, but I know everyone's looking forward to getting back and, and being able to do some more things in the future. Mm-hmm. So for those people in the world who are strictly about business profitability and bottom line results, how does a business being focused on diversity and inclusion, how does that contribute to their bottom line success? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that's something businesses really grapple with these days, like why should we spend money on making sure our employees feel welcome and happy? And I think you're gonna, that's the best way you get the best out of your employees. If you're going to hire people and, and, you know, pay money for them, you want them to bring their best self to work. You don't want them to be hiding themselves or, or unsure of themselves because I think they're just not going to be as productive. They're not going to be as comfortable um, and they're just not going to give them, you know, give the best effort they possibly can to the business because they're just, they're not going to feel as connected. I think I feel very connected to where I work. I I feel valued. I feel trusted. Um and I think, you know, that goes a long way for how much equipment I'm willing to give back to the business. Mm-hmm. You talked earlier about Adobe's diversity and inclusion groups that they support. What are some of the other practical groups that support diversity and inclusion in the world in other businesses? Ooh, I'm not really sure about a lot of other businesses. I know that, um, you know, for example, I think when it comes to Adobe Pride, um, obviously that's really what I'm most connected to, especially in other businesses. So I know when you think about Mardi Gras over here for Sydney, we know that Bank is one of the main sponsors and I know they go a lot, a lot of, um, they do a lot of investments in that event and with their persons as well. Uh, Commonwealth Bank, I know they do a lot of things. And these are really big public you know, public events that you see um, kind of doing that. And I think if you if you remember back in, I think it was about 2017 when it was the the, um, the marriage equality vote, and I actually remember at the time they had a big alliance group of businesses brought out a single-page ad in, in maybe it was the Financial Review or, or City Morning Herald or something, and it had all these businesses on there and they were all businesses that were publicly putting their names out in support of, of the yes vote. And, and seeing that, 
kind of for me actually shows us how invested a lot of these businesses are in their people and their diverse networks and they may not have had networks at that point but you know I'm sure now they probably they probably do or they're a lot closer to it so um, yeah it's, it's great I think it's very public these days and it's it's um it's a selling point if you're looking to go into a business one of the questions you're going to ask what's your diversity and inclusion policy like what's your culture like and these are the things that I think bring top talent into an organization mm-hmm. now being authentic in business today is a desired trait but a lot of older generations don't understand how being authentic can be a thing shouldn't we all just be who we are are people more inclined though to be authentic in today's business world now that they know that they'll be included at companies with their diversity and inclusions policies yeah i i absolutely think that um I think because also the workplace is a lot more diverse than it was 50 years ago. You know, 50 years ago it was probably a lot of men that looked like yourself uh, and maybe a handful of women that looked like me um, and that was probably it. And now I think the multicultural layer of Adobe is, is cha- of Australia, sorry, has changed. So the workplace is changing and I think you work with a lot of different and fascinating and interesting and wonderful people and I think that allows people to be themselves you know, kind of in, in, more, in more aspects. I also think... The, the world between work and, and non-work is, is molding. I think with social media, uh, people engage with their colleagues a lot more outside of the workplace than they used to, um, and I think that makes it harder to be inauthentic at work. So, you know, a lot of people I work with know that I play play sports. Like they see that I play football. They you know they see me come to train to work with bruises all over my arms because I got tackled really hard by someone. Um, and I think if you, you kept that layer away or you hid that from the workplace, I think it becomes obvious um, and it probably would make it a lot harder to connect with your peers as well. So speaking about your footy career, <laughs> you are an authentic leader yourself, captaining the Pennant Hills Demons uh, women's team. When you were a little girl, there were no women's Aussie rules teams. Did you ever think that one day you might captain one? God, no. I um. I played I played football or soccer uh, growing up uh, at the state level uh, up until I was maybe 21 or 22, and I loved that. And I was all, I was also in those instances generally kind of a captain or vice captain. And then I think I quite got into footy. I think it was it was it 04 when Swans won their one of their last flags. 05, Eleanor. That, that was so. I'm a giant. I'm a giant girl. Come on, let's, let's not have this argument right now. Um, and I remember watching that game, and and kind of that was probably I think the first time that I really was like, wow, this this is actually a pretty cool sport and a pretty cool game. And um, my parents, whilst rugby league fans or football fans, um, you know, started kind of watching it at that point as well. And I slowly started to enjoy watching it, and and then kind of stopped playing soccer and and really missed playing competitive sport but also at quite a high level I was still playing soccer but at kind of did three level which is is a little bit below what I'd been playing for quite a while and that's when um you know the first year that that the Peno team um were advertising for a women's team I thought you know why not get involved challenge myself and also get you know re-engage in my local community again I'd previously always been playing soccer in in a team that was not close to where I lived um, and so there was a lot of really fascinating aspects, but um, I don't think I ever thought I'd be playing it or half decent. So it's um, it's 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 actually probably been one of the biggest life changing experiences for me as, as an adult joining Peno and, and what's kind of come out of that. Very cool. So how does it make you feel knowing that little girls today would grow up thinking they might captain a footy team one day because of trailblazers like you? 
Well, I think it's great. I wouldn't say I'm maybe a trailblazer. I think there's a lot of women before me and, um, you know, when we go to AFLW, it's it's great to see that um, and some of the women out there. But I think a lot of it also comes down to now I think parents also see it as a viable option for, for their their sons and daughters and, and are encouraging in that sense. So I think that's actually probably been one of the biggest changes that I've seen, you know, um, you know, when I was in Melbourne earlier this year, my partner and I went to watch a, I think it was the Pies versus St Kilda in the AFLW and the amount of like older brothers or dads with their younger sisters or daughters or, you know, grandpas or whatever with their, I think is awesome. And that shows that I think, again, 15 years ago, they wouldn't take their, their kids to a girls game because they don't want to watch it. But I think that whole mindset's changed as well. And that's what's amazing. Like there's just so many more people interested in engaging the game. And it's just, yeah, it's going to just keep going up and up. Very true. Now, I want to ask you some questions as Eleanor Rugg, the Australian woman who works and plays footy on the weekend. What's the proudest thing you've seen one of your teammates do on or off the field? On or off the field? On off the field. Um, I think for us uh, it was probably... A couple of years ago, two years ago, we had one of our premier, like our players, actually switch clubs, um, which is never fun. Which is never fun when you have someone leave, and it was a lifestyle choice. It was too far to travel, which I totally get. But I think one of the proudest things that has reminded me of like the culture that we built in the women's program and at Penno was that it would, the second she came back to the club when we played her, everyone was all over her with love, and she was happy to see everyone and. The way that she still kept engaging with the club from the time she left, it's it's very cemented the fact that we actually have created what we've created with our club and with our culture has actually kind of come to fruition. And the fact that she was one of our better players, and you know we will always welcome her back. Um, but the fact that the, I think the relationships really stayed there has made me really proud of the program that we've developed, and also her as well. Like it's um you know it's never easy to leave something when even if it's best for you. Um, I think I think that's kind of something that's really that's, and that's always been really important for me is the way we go go about things often on the field. Mm-hmm. So, what are the some what are some of the social causes that you're passionate about today? Black Lives Matter, marriage equality, gender pay equality. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think Black Lives Matter is something that I think Australia needs to have a much deeper, harder look at. I think we've obviously gotten on the bandwagon in respect to the, the issues in the United States. Um, but I think we're completely forgetting about that we have a whole other range of issues, especially in regional Australia, um, the way we treat our Indigenous community as well as the way I'm, you know, I'm sure that we we treat some of our, um, you know, non-Australian-born non, um, Australians. Like, you know, how are we supporting people who don't look like you and me? Um, and I think that's a, that's a massive problem that we need, to, we need to move forward from. And I think Australia really needs to address the fact that we are, you know, we've got a casual racism problem in this country. Um, I think for me, yeah, I think pay equality, absolutely. And I think just, you know, equality in general around that, you know, I think COVID has really highlighted that. You've got the people that are really struggling and they're the people that can't afford to work from home. They're the people that have to be in customer-facing roles versus people that, you know, I'm very thankful and grateful that I have a job that enables me to work from home. So I'm a much lower risk from getting COVID, but a lot of people aren't. And I think we need to work on how do we support people like that. Um, I think for me, climate change is a really big thing as well. So I think we need to really start thinking about how we're going to protect this this world. It's the only one we've got, um, you know, for our kids and for their kids and those kids. Oh, you're on mute, Barnaby. 
Anna, be your own mute, can't you? Sorry, my bad. <laughs> okay, there you go. I, I said you're just a young kid still. Are you passionate enough? <laughs> are you passionate enough that you go to rallies, protests, and donate money to these social causes? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, monetary donation, that's definitely something that we, especially in the last two years, it's I think it's the safest way to get involved. Um, and I think for me it's around, you know, like what are practical ways, you know, signing petitions. It doesn't, I think it doesn't take very long to do something like that, but it can often make a big difference. Um, and I think, yeah, when appropriate, going to rallies and those sorts of things um, are really important. I think for me though, the main thing that I've really taken the last kind of eight months, two years around is really education. So, how am I educating myself? Uh, you know, getting my am I getting my news from always the same resource? No, I should be getting it from multiple different things. Um, you know, and that enables me to have constructive conversations with people that I might disagree with. Um, but there's, I think, there's a long way to go, and I think you know we've got to just kind of keep pushing forward. Mm -hmm. There's been a huge shift in managing people over the last two decades, which is perfectly summed up in sports leadership. People used to be able to manage teams by treating the team as one entity and delivering the same message in the same manner to every person. But these days, messages need to be tailored to each individual person. How do you get your messages across at footy as the, as the captain of the team? Are you an aggressive screamer, a gentle encourager, or a lead-by-example sort of captain? <laughs> um. I think it comes down to knowing what type of motivation your players feed off. You know, we've got, especially in, in Aussie rules, you've got, for women, you've got 21 players on a game day and every 21, you know, every person and they're going to respond to feedback differently. And as a captain, I've, you know, I've been grateful that a lot of the players have been around for a couple of years now and we've all, we're all quite close. Um, and so I know them well, but you need to know what motivates them. I know that there are some players in our team that I can just say, mate, that was shit, be better. And they'll be like, yeah, I know, I know I'm trying. Or there are other people that you need to go and, you know, give them a pat on the back and be like, I know you're trying your best, just keep going, it'll come, it'll happen. Um, or something, you know, and you really need to know your audience. And, um, and I think that's been part of kind of my success both from a corporate standpoint and sporting is is knowing is knowing what how to do that. Um, you know, I think I definitely lead by example as well. I've certainly put my body in the line of fire a few times. I think a couple of years ago I broke my cheekbone and kept playing, which didn't bode well for me afterwards. Um, but I think those sorts of things uh, are super important. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, they, they you want to be a leader that people want to follow. They don't necessarily need to, to be your best mate, but I think they need to, you know, kind of say, okay, we, we think what she's doing is the right thing and let's align ourselves with how she's, you know, stepping forward. Mm -hmm. So which method of leadership do you prefer when you're following uh, i think collaborative i think a collaborative leader someone who i don't you know like being dictated down to you know there are some instances where that has to happen and that's you know, from a football perspective you know don't be a dick to the ref yeah great no problem that makes sense to me that's a rule that everyone should follow but in other instances i think it makes more sense to say okay what do you guys think about this how do we go about this or let's try this, did it work, did it not work? Um, I think that's, you know, especially when you spend a lot of time with people and, it, and it's not a one-off event, I do think that's the best way to get people to be motivated, especially in, in today's age where, you know, we want to have a voice. Eleanor Rugg, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Everyday Greatness and I wish you all the best in your endeavours with Penno and a business. Thank, thank you for joining me. us.
It's great to see you again, and hopefully we'll be sharing a beer soon. Before I welcome our next guest, Steve Carfino, I want to acknowledge our sponsor for this episode, Cherry Civil. Stephen Cherry is a friend of mine from high school, and I really like to acknowledge and appreciate his efforts to sponsor this episode. You can find more details about Cherry Civil at www.cherrycivil.com.au. Thanks again. When Dan Aykroyd appeared in Trading Places in 1983 and in one scene wore blackface, African-American basketballer Steve Carfino was dominating for the University of Iowa Hawkeyes basketball team. At the same time, he was getting so many Valentine's Day cards, his teammates couldn't get changed because all of Steve's mail was piled up in front of their lockers. A lot has changed over the years, especially in race relations. Steve's kids, Clayton and Bronte, are growing up in a world where there's been an Aboriginal Australian of the Year and a black US president. Steve has worked in the, in the Australian media since retiring from the Sydney Kings in 1991, so he's seen firsthand the changing landscape in race relations in sport. It started with the Negro Leagues in the US, where black baseballers had to form their own league as they were banned from playing in the professional white leagues. That was until Jackie Robinson broke down that racial barrier. Then it moved on to Tiger Woods, a black golfer who members didn't want to admit to some of their golf courses because of the colour of his skin. But Tiger broke down that racial barrier and became one of the world's greatest ever golf players. There are still people breaking down racial barriers. Adam Goods, Paddy Mills and the South African rugby union team. And they're doing it thanks to trailblazers like Steve Carfino. Steve doesn't take himself too seriously these days. He's just an everyday Joe Bag of Donuts trying to get through life as well as he can. But in not taking himself too seriously, Steve is setting the example for other young children of colour to live a life full of opportunity. Steve still works in the media. He does basketball coaching and he's even given stand-up comedy a crack. But Steve is just an everyday bloke. But in being an everyday bloke, Steve is a serious role model for those young black children who might not know what their role is in today's society. Kids like Clayton and Bronte. Clayton and Bronte are living lives full of opportunity thanks to people like Steve Carfino. And Steve is helping those kids dream as big as their imaginations can take them. They realise now they can be Australian of the Year, US President, or even an NBL Hall of Fame basketballer. So I'd like to welcome Steve Carfino to Everyday Greatness. Steve, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Barnaby. Man, that's quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up in Bellflower, California, tell us what America was like back then. Was it made very clear that black people could aim for certain things and white people for different things? I, I think it was... It was a struggle, you know, because it was a movement that was, you know, on its way up. It wasn't that long before, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that um, blacks were segregated, you know, like had to ha sit at the back of the bus. And um, so I, I heard firsthand stories of, you know, my parents growing up in that era. 
So, uh, you know, and that's the best way to hear about things by word of mouth, definitely back then, because, you know, there was no internet. So that was where you got a lot of your knowledge from. You're sitting around at barbecues. We first moved from New York, from Amityville, New York. We moved to uh, Compton, California. So we moved to a predominantly black neighborhood. And so, you know, we'd go to the barbecues and we'd hear some stories, um, you know, firsthand about, you know, like, say, for example, my father not being allowed, not being served at restaurants, not being allowed in people's homes. And, you know, I didn't really have grow up with the severity of that. There was like racial, you know, overtones, but um, there was only a couple of times where I wasn't allowed in someone's house. They were like, oh, he he's not, you know, welcome in our home. So my friends, we all sat, we all slept overnight. We went to a guy's house in Chicago. We slept in the van. You know, I didn't even realize that was going. That was the reason why we had to sleep out in the van. But they all rallied around me and said, look, we don't want to go in unless Steve's welcome as well. So that's only happened to me a handful of times where it was just blatant, where somebody came out and said, you know, you're not welcome in this restaurant or you're not welcome in this um, in this home or. Um, you know, asking me if if I'm a member, do I re- they're looking me up and down at a golf course because, you know, they they didn't want anybody of color on their golf course. But, you know, like I knew better not to dress properly. So I had all the perfect gear on to play golf. So um, as as we you know go through the generations and and my kids have, you know, their you know, they have benefits as well. You know, like when I was a kid, being racially mixed was really tricky, you know, because it was like you weren't really accepted from either side. Now my kids get called exotic, you know, because they, they're racially mixed. And, um, you know, they get the benefits of, of looking unique, of having curly hair, of having full lips, of having a, you know, a round backside, you know, like those are the things that are really kind of glorified in, in today's society. So, you know, they get their perks as well. But, you know, with me, um, you know, the kids have, you know, the, the kids also have a unique set of circumstances where they're faced with, say, for example, a um, uh, a rap song comes on. I know I'm going to say some rappers that are old and, and they're probably irrelevant now, but, you know, Notorious B.I.G. or or Tupac and you know, they say the N word a lot in their songs. And so my kids were growing up during that era when they started to um, have their own musical tastes and they'd have those, those songs playing or their friends would have those songs playing. And, and so that the N word would be, you know, would sing, they would sing right along to it. And so um, I just said, look, that's kind of a, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, then maybe you shouldn't throw out a mixed message of your own, you know, like just leave that word alone. When that word comes up in the song, just don't sing with it and, and just say to your friends, look, you know, it, it's, it's not cool for you to say that. So, you know, like I'd appreciate it if you, I don't say it. So, you know, I really don't want you to say it either. So, you know, it's just, it's an ever changing, you know, in minefield, you know, the, with the, um, the political correctness now, I think is, completely out of hand. You know, I think that people are just not even using any common sense when it comes to that. But I think that, you know, when you um, when you judge those things, uh, I think Guy's Cube probably put it the best. I saw him do it on an interview with um, that political comedian. I think it's Mar, what is something Mar, I think. And he said that um, 
look, I, I don't really think that white people should use that because that's our word. And I don't use it at all. So I just think that I think you're throwing a mixed message. But he said that um, when when other when he hears people say it, there is like a, a sting to it, you know, like two people can say the same word and it has a completely different meaning. And so I, I think that, you know, like when I judge people on what they do and what they say, I judge them on on their intention. You know, what is their intention when they say it? And I can usually tell by when people say things what their intention is. You know, if their intention is to cause malice or, you know, um, animosity, um, have a bit of a zing, you know, and hide behind the fact that, oh, well, you know, other people use it. So I didn't mean anything by it or I was joking. I can usually tell when someone is has got some venom in, in what they're saying and how they're saying it. Very different world. You arrived at the University of Iowa when you arrived there. You were the man about town on campus. How many Valentine's Day cards did you receive back in the day? Um, quite, quite a few. You know, like we, had, we were a big deal in the state of Iowa. Uh, they had just gone to the Final Four um, and lost to the eventual uh, NCAA champion, Louisville. So um, they were on statewide television. It was Iowa Television Network. And to give you an example of how popular it was in the state. We would play little pickup games, just shirts and skins, no referees, no um, no scoreboard, um, no uniforms. And we would play at eight o'clock in the morning and the football games would be at one o'clock in the afternoon. So people from all over the state would come in um, just to go, you know, tailgating at, at the football, uh, in the football car park. And they would walk over to the gym and watch us play shirts and skins. And there would be 8,000 people watching us just play shirts and skins games. You know, I never played in front of an empty seat when I was in school. We, our arena had, we moved from an old arena to a new arena. So the old arena had 13 and a half thousand and the new arena had uh, 17,000 Carver Hawkeye arena. So in the whole four years, I never played in front of an empty seat and it was just crazy, you know? So uh, you know, Valentine's Day, there were so many, there were so many letters on my locker that, you know, I couldn't see the mirror. You know, I have a locker with the big long mirror in front. I couldn't see the mirror and it was overflowing onto the floor. And so it was, it was messy. So the coach wasn't real happy with it. So um, I had someone who had to be um, assigned to my letters. So, so it didn't make a, a mess of the locker room. Uh, you asked if I've ever if I've ever had a locker with a mirror in it. No, I haven't. So no, I have no idea what you're talking about. But it sounds it sounds incredible. Yeah. So race race relations was still very strained while you're at university. Did you experience any blatant racism in the locker rooms? No, no. I mean, I think that um, you know, like unlike my parents, you know, there's a lot more racial tension, you know, in their generation and. You know, it was it was less, a lot less when I came and and it was kind of like um, in Iowa, you know, there was a lot of racism. I, I, I've got maybe <laughs> make sure I, I stay on track, but I got a funny story for you. When I was playing at Iowa, one of my teammates was from Iowa City. And so we would play um, inter squad games all around the state. So people from, you know, different parts of Iowa could get a chance to watch us play live if they couldn't make it all the way to Iowa City. So we're playing in um, this city called Marshalltown, Iowa. 
And even though it was a high school gym, it was a big gym. They played in this thing called the Roundhouse, and it had uh, um, a capacity of 5,000 people. And so we're playing there, and one of my teammates from Iowa City, and he was my roommate my freshman year, his name was Mark Gannon. And his father, no, sorry, his, his uncle was from Marshalltown, so he came to the game. And I'm telling you, he was like a farmer. Overalls, hat. Yeah, I imagine him still having like a hayseed hanging out of his mouth, but I might be exaggerating there. But he was about as 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 like a Iowa farm boy as you could possibly get. So uh, he <laughs> he comes into the locker room after the game. Our team's probably sixty percent black and forty percent white at the time, and so we're all in the locker room together. And so his uncle comes in, you know, because. You know, people's families were allowed to come in, especially in the off, you know, in the preseason. It wasn't as it wasn't as intense. So there's some people from some boosters from the area and there's Mark Gannon's uncle. So he walks in, he's got his overalls on, he's got his thumbs tucked behind the straps. And he was like, um, so so excuse, it, it, it doesn't sound the same unless I say the word, you know, so give yeah, me a pass on this one. He was like, he looked around real proud and said, oh, your niggers played well tonight. Like it was a compliment. <laughs> it, caught, it caught all of everybody, the white, black, it caught us all by surprise. We were like, did he? Yeah, I, I think he did, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, you know, there was racism there, but I think it was, um, I mean, he didn't mean anything by that. So he was completely ignorant, but. Um, you know, there were times when we would leave campus and, you know, um, you know, people didn't care, you know, if you were popular in the state of Iowa, they let it be known that they didn't really approve of you being in their town. But for the most part, I think my Iowa experience was, you know, no matter how much racism there was in the state of Iowa, I think it got downplayed a lot. You know, I think um, it was do the right thing, you know, when they were having this this race riot. And he's like, I, you know, I don't understand. You can't stand black people, but your favorite athlete is Michael Jordan. You know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, but that's different. You know? So I think that we kind of fell under that umbrella of we were adored as Iowa athletes and we got a bit of a pass for, for not being the right race. Hmm. So you were adored as an Iowa athlete so much that you were contacted by the Hobart Tassie Devils in Australia to come and play in the National Basketball League. When you first got that call from someone at the Hobart Tassie Devils, did you have any idea where Hobart was? No, <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I, I think um, I, was, I wasn't even aware that there was an island, you know, that was below the mainland in Australia. I, I did know that there was a country <laughs> uh, named Australia and never thought I would ever get there, but I was always fascinated by the things that I had heard. Um, but like you're like any American, shouldn't say any American, but by most, like most Americans, I was very ignorant of anything outside of America. So when I was told that I was being recruited by this team from Hobart, which was in Tasmania, and when they described it to me, it was this beautiful island south of the mainland, which it is. But in my mind, they were saying it's this beautiful island. I knew that Australia was famous for its beaches and beautiful weather. And excuse me. And um, and so I thought, wow, it must be like Hawaii. 
And it, <laughs> it wasn't, it is beautiful, but it's, it's nothing like Hawaii, you know, the weather's nothing like it. Uh, so I was in for a real, uh, like a real shock when I got there. Uh, I had no idea. And I had no idea they drove on the left-hand side of the road. Um, and I did, I had no idea, uh, what, what route meant, you know, like I asked these, we, our first function, I asked, there was a lot of words like that. Um, I asked these, these ladies that were at one of our opening functions to introduce the team. I said, Oh, you know, so, you know, are, are you going to root for us? And they looked at each other like, wow, you know, this guy's forward. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure one of them said, well, can you buy me a drink first? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Does sound interesting. Tasmania is definitely not Hawaii. No. <laughs> so, how did you see when you touched down in Australia? How did you see race relations in Australia with white Australians and Aboriginals compared to America? Well, I, I thought the um, the Indigenous uh, people were very similar to the Native Americans in America. So there was that whole, you know, fitting in with. Um, their cult, you know, with the culture that, you know, we're all a part of, you know, to go be educated, to go to university, to get jobs, to have a mortgage, all those things that, you know, are, are regular in our society and not necessarily um, reg regular in their, you know, in their culture, you know, how they were brought up, how they, what their culture is from. So I think that it was very similar. So it was kind of like, I was always kind of, throwing those parallels together with the indigenous people of Australia and Native Americans of, of America. So that was kind of where I saw that. But as far as racism goes, and I, I, I still believe this to this day, um, you know, there is there's racism wherever you go, you know, whether it is, you know, the, the difference between cultures, you know, religion, um, color of skin. You know, I think that there's always going to be those differences. And when people don't understand someone's culture or someone's race or, you know, someone's upbringing, you know, even um, uh, socioeconomic differences, you know, like uh, people that's people that are from a family that have been on the dole for three generations compared to um, a family that has been educated through private schools and and have, you know, had the, the, the fortunate upbringing of being able to to provide for their families and, and you know for for generations you know there, there's a lot of differences between those two cultures so I, I think that there's always going to be difference like that but I, I think that what the difference is in America with with um, with uh, I didn't shouldn't just say racism but you know people's tolerance of of others that are that are different um, it is that if Say, for example, someone says, oh, I don't I don't like Chinese people. And then there's a there's a Chinese couple that come to your house. That's a friend of a friend and they have a, they're a dinner party and they're having a good chat. I don't think that I've met one Australian that doesn't judge that person for who they are on that night. You know, like, oh, I feel like this about this certain group. But so I can't stand that person no matter what they do or say. I, I've never met Australian. That is that hell bent on their prejudice or their rage, their racism to to just go just a blanket. I can't stand anyone. Doesn't matter what they say or do. I've never really met anyone like that in Australia. And I've met plenty of people like that in America. I don't think I've met anyone like that in Australia either. 
Yeah. So you mentioned your kids earlier, Clayton and Bronte. Do you think the world looks different to your kids than it did for you in terms of opportunities for kids of colour to get ahead in the world? I, I think that there is, it's it's a definite, you know, it was a lot easier for me than it was for my parents. But I think it's it's easier in some ways for the kids. But I mean, this is a, this is in tough this is a tough world to try and succeed in, you know, the, the population, the, you know, the competitiveness of, you know, being educated and the jobs that are available, you know, and definitely now in this, in this world that we're living under, under these conditions, it makes it very difficult for, for, um, you know, to, to get employment that is going to provide for a family, buy a house with the prices that, um, that it takes to be able to get a bank loan under under these trying circumstances is there are some things that are a lot more difficult for them than it was for me growing up and trying to establish myself and and provide for a family. There are a lot bigger challenges for them, but at the same time, it's it's like they get to do it on an equal playing field. So in no way, shape, or form are are they discriminated against to where. Uh, it makes it difficult for them to, to succeed. If they educate themselves and work hard, you know, they have just as good a chance to succeed as as anyone else does in any race or uh, any any uh, socioeconomic background. There's there's the same opportunities if you that's what you want, um, you're able to get it. And so I think that on that on you know on that playing field on that platform, you know, there's there's lots of equality. Um, and then on, on the other platforms, I think that they got a lot easier. Cause like I said before, they're looked at like they're exotic. They're not looked at like they don't fit in on either culture. They fit in everywhere. Everybody wants to hang with them. <laughs> that's very cool. I've heard a lot of, a lot of people talk about race relations and that's probably one of the coolest things I've heard that your children are growing up in a world where everything's fair game, everything's equal, equal opportunities. So tell yeah. me about Clayton and Bronte. Are they happy little Australians or do they wish they'd been born in America? Oh, 100% Australians. They loved it. Like Clayton, at one point in time, he wanted to go to play college basketball in America. And I think a lot of that was just he saw um, some, he saw some games of mine and, you know, saw me playing in front of 20,000 people and, and, you know, the starting lineups and, you know, the, it's pretty cool, you know, like to be able to see that, to see his father, you know, play, you know, under those circumstances and the stories that I would tell him, or he'd hear my roommate from college and I chatting on FaceTime and, and it sounds really fun. Like we've got a great relationship. I've got a great relationship with a, with a, several of my teammates that I went to school with. So I think that he really thought, wow, that would really be cool to play in that environment. So at one point he wanted to go you know, over to America. But when he went over there, he he didn't like it. You know, he was in L.A., went to my old high school. And, you know, there are a lot of things that are very difficult, you know, like it's very competitive over the competitive. It's very cutthroat. You know, people would like steal your shoes, steal your money, steal your bag, you know, like uh, do things that try and make you late for practice. So the coach would get mad at you. You wouldn't start the next game. You had to persevere through that. Um, and he has a great lifestyle. 
in Australia. So he he was like, Dad, I I know that you came over. I basically resigned from my television job just to go over there and support him and help him get through that. And if that's what he wanted, I was going to be there to help him achieve it. But he was like, oh, would you be upset with me if I went back to Australia? I said, well, I completely get it. So, you know, here we are back in Australia again. And I had a feeling that he he wouldn't like it as much as his lifestyle here in Australia. But, you know, like it's one thing to tell him that. It's another thing to actually live it and really have that cemented in your mind that he's very fortunate to be living here in Australia. I mean, like he's a good looking kid. looks like his body was built in a laboratory. Um, <laughs> does commercials. You know, he's on an ad for Love Island right now. Yeah, he's got his shirt off. He does Rebel ads. He does Powerade ads, you know, and he's a personal trainer in Bondi right on the water. He's got a great lifestyle. And my my daughter has never for once thought that she wanted to live in America. So they are 100% Australian and loving it. That's a very cool story. So what did your parents tell you about goal setting when you were a kid? Did they tell you you could be anything you wanted or was it a bit more realistic in America back then as a black, as a black kid trying to get ahead? I think that my parents, what, what they instilled in me was that, you know, if you want something bad enough, then you have to put the work in. Now, I was, my parents weren't real um, communicators. You know, it was, I was the youngest of three and I pretty much had to, you know, watch my siblings and, you know, like we weren't allowed to speak back to my parents, you know, like that, you know, that whole speak your mind to your parents thing that just didn't happen in our house. Um, they would just give you that look. My mother ruled the house with a look, you know, she, you know, she did. And, and I, I can't even remember how many times my mother or my father would say, watch your tongue. You know, like you weren't even allowed to say like, what? You couldn't say what it had to be. Pardon me, excuse me. You know, it was a very strict household, but you know, for me, it was quite evident. And I think that my older brother had a lot to, 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 a, a lot to do with the successes that I had was because he set the benchmark pretty high. He was drafted by the Golden State War. No, sorry, the, um, the Baltimore Orioles at a high school in baseball. Then he went on to play basketball at the University of Southern California on a basketball scholarship. And then he was drafted by the Golden State Warriors after he left college. So he was drafted in two professional sports and, and growing up behind that, he was a very, he's like a natural athlete. You know, never been to the driving range, single figure, figure handicap golfer. I mean, who does that? Um, never goes to a bowling alley, rolls a 200, you know, like straight away, no technique, no lessons, no, no ball of his own, just, just a natural athlete. So I grew up behind that. So that was, I, I wanted to be as good as my brother. Now he would show me how to do things, but because things came so naturally for him, if he said, all right, you got to make 10 free throws before you go in the house, he'd make 10. And then I would, it, I would make 10 in a row, but it would take me an hour and a half before I would, before I would be able to achieve that. Now in the end, it was a, it was a blessing because I knew how to work hard, you know, I knew how to push through the barrier of, I, I, I fell in love with the process. You know, it wasn't just the goal and it wasn't just, you know, the achievements or 
or the goals. You know, once I achieve those goals, okay, now I can be happy. I would be passing people up every summer because I worked harder than they did. You know, like we would get to the park and I would have been there shooting around already. They would leave and I would continue to shoot. And I would, and I just, I loved it. I love passing those guys up. That guy was better than me beginning of the summer. That guy's not as good as me now. And then it was that whole, um, you know, like how I mentioned, I wasn't really accepted by the white community. I wasn't really accepted by the black community either. So like when I went and played in a pickup game and they gave me that look like, who's this Mexican looking guy? I got him. Yeah. Like looking at me like with no respect. And I learned very early that I couldn't get distracted mentally by talking or getting emotional. So I would really just have, you know, a poker face when I played. But my mind was for all of those little, you know, racial innuendos that were thrown at me on the basketball court or on the baseball field or on the football field, that were that was where I could zing them back. And I wouldn't even have to say anything. Somebody would be disrespectful. Yeah, I got this clown. And I before they knew it, I had 20. Bang. You know, like take that. And that was my motivation. I don't know if that's healthy, but that was my motivation to destroy any race that came at me. I had a lot of animosity boiled up inside of me. And that was how I took it out on people. Sounds healthy to me. (laughs) So what have you told your own kids about goal setting? Do you tell them they can be anything they want? Oh, absolutely. You know, like um, Clayton, um, Clayton was never good at school. So, um, and, and Brunty's was better at school. So, you know, unfortunately, when, when you have two kids and one of them struggles, even both of them might be struggling, but one of them really struggles and the other one doesn't struggle as much, you don't tend to give the other one as much parenting as you do the other one. So I, I would say that Brunty kind of missed out a little bit on things because we were so busy trying to, trying to get Clayton through his day, you know? <laughs> It's funny because he's he's really got it to himself together now. But man, when he was young, whoo, man, he was a challenge to parent. But um, I think my kids they um, they have understood and they've watched uh, their mother and I. Mother, their mother and I aren't together anymore. But you know, we've always focused on the kids. And I think our message to them was that there are going to be tough times. You know, don't think that you're going to reach this pinnacle and it's going to be all right. Once I get this car, everything is going to be cool. Once I have this holiday, then I'll be happy. You know, once I have this job and I make good money, then I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be set. I said, you know, like our our message has been that life's always going to throw some obstacles at you. And it's how you deal with that and how you persevere through those problems and and how you can go about go about tough times and still be positive um, and still feel like you've achieved something as you're starting to pick at a problem and quite conquered it yet but as you're that you can have that good feeling um, to be happy with little things you know like the company of your friends or um, a job well done or uh, not being able to figure something out and then when you and then when you finally do that feeling that you have like I think that those are the type of things that we've tried to instill in our children, uh, in Brunty and Clay. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and take full credit for that because, you know, it's been a team effort with um, her, with Nikki and, and I, even though we're not together, we, we've been apart for 11 years and we still, you know, come together on those decisions. We still 
we still chat when there's when they're faced when the kids are faced with a challenge and and we still work as a team lucky kids steve Carfino, you're a really good man thank you so much for joining me on everyday greatness my pleasure anytime for you barnes i'll stop it thank you steve and thank you eleanor for joining me on everyday greatness thank you all for listening thank you to the ara group for being our major sponsor for the fourth year in a row Thank you to Cherry Civil for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to Look Studio Australia for recording this episode. And I hope that when you lift your head up, put you lift your, I hope when you put your device down, you lift your head up, push your shoulders back, and walk down the street, proud of being an everyday Joe Bag of Donuts. I hope you can join us next episode, where I'll be speaking to State Sales Manager at Medtronic Diabetes, Lee Johnston and Tim Aliff, the manager of television and video at ABC News and the author of crime thriller trilogy, The Enemy Within. I'll be talking to them both about authentic leadership in business. If you want to find out more, please go to our website, www.everydaygreatness.com.au or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube or LinkedIn. Thank you again, Steve and Eleanor, and thank you all for joining me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Greatness, proudly brought to you by major sponsor ARA Group. If you'd like to stay up to date, check out our pages on Facebook and Instagram or to listen to more episodes, go to everydaygreatness.com.au or wherever you get your podcasts.